Welcome to the Quick Talk Podcast with Joshua Latimer, where we discuss business, life, family, faith, struggle, fire, pain, and ultimately winning. It's time to take massive action. Look, I, I can't work harder on your life or business than you do. It's ultimately all on you. You know, God created all the food the birds would ever need, but he doesn't put it in their nest. You've got to go get it. 10 out of 10 people die. So how about doing something today that actually matters while you still can? Hey, my friends, welcome to the Quick Talk Podcast. Hope you're doing awesome. I'm going to do a little bit of teaching today on the power of perceived value. And I haven't done like an actual like tactical, like nuts and bolts thing on a specific topic in a while. And I'm putting together a really exciting, like, I can't even tell you what it is. It's, it's not something that I'm going to be promoting myself. It's this partnership, but I'm going to be teaching with some other cool people. And one of the things I'm going to be talking about is the power of perceived value. And being that we're in the second half of the year, I think it's a good time to look at the systems we have and the way that we're visualizing our business in, in terms of the customer life cycle and the touch points and the opportunities we have and oftentimes miss to wow our customers and to blow their minds and to over deliver and all, all, all of that kind of thing. So I am at my house on my phone. I know you can tell, um, but I like doing podcasts on my phone because I can walk around and be creative. It's different than sitting in my chair in my office doing a podcast. But here's the deal. So I want to tell you a story about wine tasting. And I want to tell you a story about a guy I know that spent $5,000 on a golf club and what it has to do with your small business. So... And I also want to talk about Seth Godin. He has a new podcast that's ridiculously cool called Akimbo. You should check that out. He's a genius. And uh, how, how does this all tie together, right? So check this out. So I remember years ago, we did a, a quote for someone. And I don't remember the exact details or the exact price. But we gave this guy a price, I think, for like roof cleaning. We had this like process where we could clean all the mildew and algae and lichen and mold off of people's roofs or roofs. I don't know which one's right. Don't judge me. And we gave him the price and it was a really good price. It might've been like $600 or $800. I don't remember. And his roof desperately needed this to be done like bad. Like it looked horrible. It was damaging his roof. It was a beautiful home. This is a very wealthy person. And he looks at the quote and we're doing our process. We're doing our thing. And you could just tell he just, he didn't want to do it. He kind of looked at it like, ah, like, and he looks at, at, at us and is like, well, can you do it for 400 or whatever he said, right? Like he like super cut the price and tried to like beat us up on the price, even though he was this very successful, wealthy person. And we've all had jobs like that where you go to a person who has a ton of money, or at least you think they do. A lot of them are in debt up to their eyeballs and barely surviving. But that's a different conversation. Um, but they just don't care. Like they don't, you think they're a cheapskate, but really it's not that they're a cheapskate. Sometimes it is, but oftentimes it's because they just don't understand the value. They don't understand like the pain that they should feel and the fear they should feel for having, you know, a really dirty roof or not cleaning that carpet or not building the retaining wall on their lakefront property. Like they just don't really care. They just don't care. It's not important to them. And here's the profound truth. That exact same person, the same person the next day could go to the golf shop and spend $5,000 on a putter. And this comes from my friend Kevin Dabrowski, who gave this example. He could spend the same amount of money on a putter 
and feel amazing about it and feel empowered by it and think that he just spent the best, the smartest $5,000 he could have ever spent. Isn't that weird? You ever think about that? And what's tricky is when you have a service business, sometimes you're freaked out and you need the work. So you're nervous to put a high price on something. And other times you're feeling really confident and you easily put a high price on something. But how do we really know who the person is that we're presenting the price to in the first place? How do we know what type of buyer they are? Because the bottom line is that um, everybody is both types of buyers. And what I mean by both types of buyers is there's value conscious buyers and then there's price sensitive buyers. There's, those are like the two macro categories about people who buy things. And actually you and me, we're, we are both of those. Depending on what's important to you in your life or with your hobbies or your interests, uh, you have no problem laying down some serious fat coin. <laughs> serious fat coin? I don't, I don't even talk like that, but that sounded good. Okay, you don't have a problem spending a whole bunch of money on something that means something to you, but you might argue with your wife if she buys like a $10 like decorative thing to hang on your wall and you're like, we don't need that. We have so many decorative things. Why are you buying another decorative thing? And it's not about the $10. It's about the emotion, the disconnect. Like you don't even understand why someone would pay one penny for a decorative thing to go on the wall because there's zero value in that thing to you, right? Does that make sense? Are you getting this? Are you getting this? Come on, hang with me. I got more. And we got to understand that. So when we're doing marketing, and marketing means really everything, all of the essence of your brand from your literature to the way that your technicians look, to the scripting you use on the phone, to the voice inflection you use on the phone, to the literature that you hand out when you're doing your sales process, to the, like the, the process and the way you explain how you do what you do and the follow-up and your truck wraps and your logo, like all of that stuff kind of like tells the consumer like more or less in a nutshell, kind of like what your deal is, who you are. And we oftentimes forget about all of this for two different reasons. Either we're in survival mode and nothing matters except making five bucks so we can buy groceries, or you're so busy and you, you're making quote unquote money, but you're so busy you have no time to think about this type of stuff either. And in both scenarios, we, we don't really, really understand that the way that we use copy and marketing and the way we do advertising has what I call a push-pull effect. So if you try to be all things to all people, which many people do, what you're doing is you're hurting yourself. What you want to do is you want to use very clear, precise wording and copy and advertisements to purposely attract value buyers for the thing that you do and push away and stiff arm the price buyers for the thing that you do. It's okay to get really clear upfront that you're a premium luxury service provider because I already know that secretly that's what you want, but you're also holding back in the way that you market or you're doing this, the, the coupon mailer thing, but you're trying to like figure out how do I get more leads and you do the coupon. Well, like really like the coupon mailer thing, it, it could work or whatever, but <laughs> like who's getting that? Are they the people that, that, that understand the pain involved around the, the problem that your service solves, okay? I hope I'm making sense. This is, this is actually tricky to explain just on audio. I like to do visual representations. Uh, and a couple of the examples, going back to Seth Godin and the wine tasting experiment, have to do with when they do double blind studies on people and they do these weird cool things. So with wine tasting, this has been done a lot of times by a lot of different 
people or institutions that do these studies. You can Google it. You can, you can do research and find it. And it's real. It's 100% real. And it's fascinating is that people cannot, they can't. People will tell you that they can. People want to believe that they can, but they can't tell the difference between super expensive vintage wine and like an average bottle of normal wine. They can't if they don't know which is which, they're blindfolded, and then they're told the price of the bottle. So like the, the study that I was looking at, they gave these people who are like these wine connoisseurs and whatever, like I don't even know all like the nomenclature wine people use, but you know, the body and the legs and the aroma and they like wiggle it or they swirl it around the glass and they smell it and they're like totally nerding out on it. It's their thing, it's their passion. When you take those people who are supposedly the experts of that thing and you do this like secret blind testing and you give them two glasses of wine, one is a, like a $5 glass of wine and one is a $65 glass of wine. When you do that, there's no correlation between how good the actual wine is and what like the price. Like the, the people will, half of the people will say the $5 glass was clearly the right choice and it was the better wine and the body and the legs were way better. And the other half says the $65 bottle was better. But here's the moral of the story is that they're both right. They're both right. Like there's no answer to it. It's subjective. It's not objective. It's subjective. And, but here's the fascinating thing. If you do another wine study and you take people who maybe don't even care about wine and you sit them down and you blindfold them and you say, listen, I'm going to let you taste a $5,000 glass of wine. And I want you to describe what it feels like and tastes like and the experience of you consuming this wine. When you do that, maybe, maybe it w wouldn't work if it was someone that didn't care about wine at all. But if you take a wine person and you do that to them, what happens is because they believe in their heart, this is a $5,000 glass of wine. What happens is all of their senses perk up and they're optimized. They're hypersensitive to very carefully sip and I don't know, do you gurgle wine? <laughs> the point is that they consume the wine differently because of the value they think should be attached to it. And what ends up happening is they, they truly believe it is the best wine they've ever had in their life. And it's not that you're tricking them because here's the thing, it actually is the best wine they've ever tasted in their life. And the reason it's the best isn't because of some aging principle or the type of grape used, it's because of the belief that they had that it was the most elite type of wine ever. And so they consumed it. They, they enjoyed it. They experienced it at a deeper level because they're more aware of the price of the wine. And the price can be completely fake, by the way, which is the whole point of these studies. And Seth Godin on one of his podcasts, Akimbo, you have to listen to it. It's, it's profound and fascinating. He's talking about pl placebos. And I think the episode actually it might have had the word placebo in it. But he's talking about in, in medical research, like they do a lot of studies with placebos. So they're testing a drug and someone has back pain and they'll give people this, like half the people this back pain drug that's experimental and they'll give the other half a placebo. But everyone thinks that they got the actual new experimental back pain drug. And the weird thing about it is that the people that get the placebo have the same types of results, improvements, 
as the people that actually took the drug. Why is that? How does that happen, right? It just kind of goes back to the idea that belief is a really big deal. It's not just a big deal for you with your business and believing you can hit 100,000 a month or 200,000 a month or shoot, hitting 10,000 a month or 5,000 a month. You can't achieve it until you believe it. And the human mind is a very, very, very powerful thing. So with perceived value, here's the deal. It's essential that for your service company that you charge the maximum price possible. And people have problems with that because they have false views of money or they have unhealthy ideas about wealth or about charging people too much. I had them, so I totally understand. But for you to serve your customers at the highest level, if you actually care about them, if you actually care about the people that work for you, you have to find a way to be the luxury brand. You know, well, you don't have to. You can be a, a discount retailer or something. But in, in terms of my like area of expertise and the, and the path for a home service company, the way to build a premium company with high paid employees and raving fan customers is you have to charge a lot more money than everybody else, okay? You're not evil for doing it, you're smart for doing it, and you have a service-oriented heart in doing it. How are you gonna like pay living wages to your employees so they can buy their first house? How are you gonna get people to work for you for five, 10, 15, 20 years when you're paying like eight or nine or $10 an hour? You can't, it's really hard. So the way to beat it is to raise your prices. And the way to raise your prices is to understand this idea of perceived value. And I've probably mentioned in the podcast before, there's a book called The Blue Ocean Strategy. It's pretty popular, it's out there. It's an amazing concept. I'll nutshell it for you so it's like simplified. But basically in every industry, there's a red ocean. And the color red is represented or represented by sharks that are chewing up these customers and there's blood in the water and it's like a nightmare. It's very competitive, highly competitive, like lawn care comes to mind. I have a friend that lost a lawn mowing account over 50 cents a cut. <laughs> I've shared that story before. Like he literally lost a customer because he was charging $28 per cut on her mowing and someone else said, eh, I'll do it for $27.50. And she's like, oh, excellent, right? Like that is the epitome. That is, and that's a true story. And it's hilarious to me, but the, <laughs> that's the epitome of a, a price sensitive customer. But it's also the epitome of a small business owner, my friend, who's an amazing person and a nice guy, but it's the epitome of someone who has no concept of how to decommoditize their business, how to create a blue ocean, how to differentiate themselves through the use of perceived value to justify emotionally, way higher prices than, than everybody else. And so the question becomes, how do you do it? Like, what do I do? There's probably some like, like sparks going off in your brain. Like, okay, I kind of get it. Like, I'm excited. I'm listening. Like, I'm leaning in, Josh. What do I do? How do I do it? Well, step one for me is looking at what I call the customer life cycle. Now, I know other like business people have like, probably used the phrase customer life cycle. There's no possible way like I made that up. But in my head, I made it up because no one ever taught it to me. And when I was like staying up till midnight with my own business years ago, trying to figure this out, I remember thinking like, I need to, I need to map this out. I need to visualize my opportunities with my customers. And so I started sketching things and I made this pretty simple document that I ended up calling the customer life cycle. And what it is, is I tried to visualize what are all the touch points or the opportunities where I have a chance to over-deliver on expectation, where I have a chance to add more value or perceived value than the customer thought that I would. 
you know, if someone calls to get a quote from three customer from three companies, there's like a general process that happens. Okay. In today's world, man, sorry, I got the hiccups. In today's world, when you send out or ask for a quote, half the people won't call you back at all, right? And then the other half will like answer the phone and they're like, Bob's carpet cleaning. And then like maybe one of them will actually be nice on the phone. Okay, cool. And then there's like a process, like what do they say on that call? How do they engage you? How do they make it easy for you as the consumer to get the info you want? Because people don't even like calling for quotes. Calling for a quote sucks. Okay, so how do you, but you need to give them one. They need to know the price. You want an opportunity to impress them, but you gotta understand that when they call you, they're already stressed that they even call you. They have a pain point. They're like, how, how many dollars do I have to give you to fix this thing? And like, that's the beginning of the customer life cycle. And then you schedule an appointment for an estimate, let's say, which is pretty common. And then when you go to the estimate, what happens? How is the way, the how, how, how is the... The way that you do your estimate is so different, unique, weird, and better than the way everybody else does it. That's a touch point. That's an opportunity. And then when you get to the sales part where you're going to present your package pricing, hopefully you're selling packages, and that's a whole other podcast, but when you, when you present it, where's your level of confidence? Where's your level of certainty? What is the literature you're presenting them, uh, this information? Like, what does it look like? What is the card stock? Of the, of the papers that have the stuff printed on it. Like, how are you separating yourself from competition? Are you saying, well, we got the gold package or the basic package, here's the price. Any questions? Like, assume, like most of your competition is doing it like that. And so it's not that hard to go like a slight extra step or to do what I call showing them how you make the beer. Well, I, I didn't make that up either. Like my brain is full of all these things because I study things all the time. But uh, there's this beer company, I think it might've been Sam Adams and they were struggling financially bad a long time ago and they hired this marketing uh, consultancy to come in and say, like, fix our business. Like, <laughs> we don't have any money, what do we do? And, and as the owner of the Sam Adams, I think, was giving a tour to the like, marketing agents who are gonna kind of craft a strategy for them, they're walking through the warehouse, or not the warehouse, like the, the place where they make the beer, whatever that's called, the distillery, is that what it's called? I don't know. They're walking through and the owner is so passionate. He's like, here's where we like dry our hops. And forgive me for beer connoisseurs because I have no idea how to make beer, but here's how we do this. And then we actually, everybody else does this, this one step here, but we, we do actually two extra steps and then we triple filter the water. Everybody else just filters the water. We triple filter it. And then here's, here's how we put it in the bottle and we preserve more carbonation because we do this other thing. And the marketing guys didn't even ask about that. But as he was like passionately describing their process, the how they did it, the light bulb went on. And so the marketing guy said to the Sam Adams guy, we have to just tell customers how you make the beer. And for a lot of you guys, you actually do have unique proprietary ways that you do things because maybe you left a job where they did things crappier and you fixed that. Or maybe you left a different company or you had an idea that was new and fresh and unique and so you offer this different type of guarantee or you do this inspection or you have a three-step process for fill in the blank or you have the five-step fill in the blank guarantee of the whatever. That is you showing them how you make the beer. And this is a really simple way for you to decommoditize your business because no one else will have your exact process. And so during your sales presentation to the customer, very quickly explaining with like an eleva elevator pitch style like explanation, you can 
very easily make yourself stand out like a sore thumb. It's very powerful stuff. It's amazing, right? So, um, gosh, I don't know. I have so many more notes. I have a whole giant like teaching presentation on this. I'm kind of spitballing right now, looking at a couple mind maps and I can barely read them because they're on my phone, but I hope that's valuable to you. And I hope that, you know, if you're off pace from hitting your goals this year, stop overcomplicating things by thinking, you know, how do I get more money? How do I get more money? How do I find more customers? How do instead, like that's not like invalid, but instead, how can we modify the customer life cycle that you have right now with easy things, changing the email copy to sound less corporate and more personal, changing the voice inflection of the way that you answer the phone, reducing the amount of questions you ask the customer up front before you give them the estimate because you're really just annoying them because they just, they just need information as fast as possible. How do you simplify and decommoditize your business in an inexpensive, low to no cost way to justify super high prices for your business. Because with those high prices, if you're like me, your goal isn't to buy 16 jet skis. It's to give Bob and Sally and Janice, Janice, <laughs> if your name's Janice, sorry, I laughed at your name. It's to give them a raise. It's to invest in their family. It's to build out your company better, to upgrade your equipment, to pr provide a better bonus pool or a compensation structure for your team. It's to be able to serve your customers at a higher level because doing that, building that kind of business protects you and your family. It makes you literally a nightmare to compete with. And it's not because you have magical unicorn fairy dust. It's because you focus on the minutia, the tiny little details that everybody else overlooks because they're only chasing dollars. They're only thinking big picture for themselves in a selfish way. That's the only thing they're thinking about. And that's a recipe for disaster. So I hope that's valuable to you. And I will talk to you tomorrow. Take care. God bless. Hey, thanks for hanging out, friends. And from all of us here at the Quick Talk Podcast team, we hope you love today's show. We hope that you were inspired to become a doer and not just a listener. Apply what you've heard today in your own business and watch things change for the better. Lastly, remember that all the money in the world can't save your soul. Seek first the kingdom of God, my friends. We'll see you next time. For more information about the Quick Talk Podcast or Joshua's other businesses, visit our website, quicktalkpodcast.com. Have a blessed day.